Some of you know that I am a big fan of the Andy Griffith Show. Um, one of my favorite episodes is one that is popularly known as Aunt Bee's Medicine Man. Let me just uh, walk you through some of what's going on there, set the stage for uh, the plot. Um, Aunt Bee is feeling blue. She's feeling tired, if you can imagine that. Uh, because she's just gotten news of the passing of, of a dear, dear friend. And uh, so she's, she's down, and Andy can't seem to really speak much words of comfort to her. She's out walking about the streets of Mayberry, running some errands, and she runs across a man by the name of Colonel Harvey. And Colonel Harvey is selling out there as a vendor Colonel Harvey's elixir, which is said to be the cure for what ails you. And so Aunt B, being the trusting soul that she is, buys a couple of bottles of Colonel Harvey's elixir, and in short order finds herself no longer blue and tired, but happy and singing. Now, what Aunt B doesn't know is that the stuff is 85% alcohol, and that's why she's happy and singing. And uh, or as Barney puts it later, she's gassed. <laughs> And you really can't fault poor Aunt B. I mean, who, who could under any circumstance, really? But, I mean, even in, in, in this, because, I mean, she was looking for the solution. She was looking for an easy solution, some, some cure, some cure-all, some cure for what ails her. Now, in this case, she was trying to find something in a bottle. Just make it easy, make it something quick, simple. And we, of course, would love that if it was that simple. If the cure for what ails us could just be found, something you could buy from Colonel Harvey and drink it, and you're good. Um, but it doesn't work that way. We know it doesn't work that way. But nonetheless, it doesn't take away from the fact that we do need the cure for what ails us. We need, if I can push it further, a total answer. Not a partial answer, not a half-baked answer, but a total answer that satisfies the needs of our souls. Now, what if that existed? What in fact, I'm not talking about Aunt B now, what if in fact, if there was, can I say is, a total answer for the needs of our, of our souls, indeed the whole of our lives, would not that be worth hearing, heeding, embracing, if it was real? Well, my friends, I have good news for you. It is real. It is real. It is the risen, reigning Jesus. The total answer. The total answer. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to John chapter 18. I'm going to start in John chapter 18. Uh, verse 28, we're going to read on into John 19, verse 16. So John 18, verse 26, 28, excuse me, on to chapter 19, verse 16. Um, we're uh, looking at this being the final in our explicitly post-Easter series of reflections. Uh, honing in in particular, and I'll explain why in the next few minutes, on Pontius Pilate. That guy that we mentioned just kind of in passing every time we recite the, the creeds, right? Pontius Pilate. We're, we're looking at him in particular and what we can glean uh, from his, as a case study, I guess you could say. John 18, starting in verse 28. Hear now the word of God. 
Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he had made himself the God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we have to pause here at the start of a new week. Indeed, at the towards the beginning of the first day of the start of this new week, where we could gather together and stop, stop for just a minute and to, to think, to ponder, to consider, to weigh, to hear, to listen from you. Not from any man, not from any mortal, sinful human being, but from you. We ask that you would give us the ability to take advantage of this opportunity just to stop and pause and think and ponder and consider and hear. We pray that you would shape our very, very, very malleable hearts, or if needed, break. Break the crust that perhaps is formed around some of our hearts. And, and send us out. Lord, you, as uh, Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. May we find our rest in you. Amen. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, this is intended to be the last explicitly post-Easter reflection. I say explicitly because, you know, really any sermon should be a post-Easter reflection, but this is the last explicitly post-Easter reflection here this morning um, on this most significant event, uh, that first Easter Sunday, that, that the reality of the tomb being uh, empty, the, the, the pronouncement, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed, as you've heard us, me say over the last several weeks, as we've been talking about these last several weeks, it's the uh, far and away the most significant fact it is far and away the greatest event in the history of the world since the beginning of the world. And I realize that that is a bold and dramatic statement to make, but nonetheless, it has to be said. It's true. It's true. Um, it means that there it has some implications to it. The gospel answers... Our search. The gospel answers our, our, our search. There's, there's no more reason to, to keep looking, to keep wondering, to keep wandering. The, the gospel answers our search. Uh, the answers are in, the search is over. Let me give you an analogy, explain this, why, why I say that. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk and has been for years as to whether or not there's life on other planets, right? Um, and so, uh, whole chunks of money, Congress has spent chunks of money, some of you may know about the SETI, uh, search for extraterrestrial something or other. Anyway, these huge tel radio telescopes that are sitting out there in deserts and they're pointing out there towards the heavens and they're listening, listening, listening. Is anyone speaking? Does anyone have a message for us? And Okay, so you've got the telescopes pointed out there. Is there life out there? There are books that are written. There are pseudo-documentaries that are, are, are done and filmed. Um, there are conferences that are, are held, right? Is there life out there? Okay, so you've got this debate. It's kind of going, is anyone out there? Is anyone out there? Okay, imagine one day 
you're driving by the Rossview property and you look out in that field and you see this spaceship. It sounds just like that. It comes right down and it lands in the field and this little green man goes, whoop, comes right out and says, hey. I don't know if that's what you'd say, but you know. Well, that would kind of answer the question, wouldn't it? You know, is there life out there? Well, th there he is, right? It's settled. Now, so you can keep reading the books if you want to, and you can attend the conferences if you want to, and you can watch the reruns of the documentaries if you want to, but he, there he is. Answers in. Search is over. The reason I use that analogy, goofy as it is, is because with the incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh, that space and time, historical reality, it's like that. It ends the search. It brings a, an end to the questions. Is God there? Yes. In the, in the in coming of Jesus, in the, in the death of Jesus, in the rising, the resurrection of Jesus, is there a God? Yes. Can we know what He is like? Yes! The search is over. The answers, the answers, my friends, are in. It is now but for us to hear that and embrace it. It's now but to hear and embrace it. The gospel is true. I have no better news for you this morning. The gospel is true. It brings an, an end then to our searching, our, our, our wondering and wandering. Now what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at this from one particular angle. Just one particular, we can look at it from a gazillion different angles, but just one that is looking at the truthfulness. Can we, how, can, can we know it's true and how it does in fact end our searching? from one particular angle, and as I said a little while ago, just by considering the case of this guy whose name we mentioned in the creed that we never think about, Pontius Pilate, and how that informs some of what I've just said, how it backs some of what I've just said in terms of the gospel being true and how it answers our search. So I've got three questions, three questions, and you can see it there in your outline, okay? Here are the questions. First, in terms of the gospel message, the, the message of the scriptures, can it be historically verified? Question one. Question two. Does it fit our experience? What we just know of life, okay? That's question two. Question three. Does it satisfy our hearts? The deep longing of, of our being. So those three questions. Can it be historically verified? Does it fit with our experience? Does it satisfy our hearts? All right, let's take a look. Number one. Can the gospel message be historically verified? Just looking, I know this is just one slice of this, so bear with me, okay? One narrow little itty-bitty slice. Like I'm, it's like I'm doing a core sample. Just going way, way down in one narrow shaft, but you're gonna, we're going to see something in that one core sample regarding these questions. Just thinking about the case of Pontius Pilate. Can the gospel be historically verified? If it's true, we should see evidence of it in all kinds of different ways. And it should be able to withstand the pressure of good, hard look and investigation. And if it can't handle it, then let's sleep in next Sunday. But if it can, you might want to think about coming back. All right? 
So here's the first thing. The source is just on Pontius Pilate. Do we have any? Is he just a myth? Is he just a fairy tale? Well, you know, what's interesting is that archaeologists have discovered some things about Pontius Pilate. We have coins that they found that he had minted during a three-year, three, four-year period, roughly around between 28 and 32 A.D., three different sets of coins that were minted while he was governor, prefect of Judea. Archaeological proof. Wouldn't use it at the bank. Archaeological proof. Another set of information. You can see this quote here in your quotes and notes. It's the second one. Oh, excuse me, the third one. A little short one thing. There, in, in the, I think it was the summer of 1961, some archaeologists were doing some digging in what we know as Caesarea, and they found this inscription. And this is what the inscription said. Yeah, I put it, it was obviously not in English. It's this translation here. Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. So we have a historical record. The man, just from archaeologists, can tell us he's not a myth. This is history. Well, where else do we see something in terms of the sources that we have in Pontius Pilate? It's not just archaeology, it's literature. And I don't mean fictional literature, I mean in terms of literary sources. I'll give you four. First, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are historical sources that we have that tell us something about Pontius Pilate and his career. But it's not just the New Testament Gospels. We also have the writings of the first century Jewish historian Josephus who wrote volumes about the guy. In fact, there's an ex a quote there from one of his books there at the bottom of your quotes and notes. Don't read it now. Read it when you get home. Okay? Um, not just Josephus, Jewish historian, who's not a friendly witness, by the way, to all this. You have another, a Jewish philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, roughly Josephus's contemporary, also writing about Pontius Pilate and some incidences in his career. Then we have also Tacitus, the Roman historian, who in writing and reflecting on the great fire of Rome, roughly 60 A.D., makes mention of Pilate and Pilate's role in the execution of this one called Christus. That's Tacitus, Roman historian. Not a friendly witness, but nonetheless, it's in the record. My point just in bringing these things up real quickly is we have historically verifiable data on that guy, Pontius Pilate. Not a myth, not a fairy tale. Now, what do, what do we know about his reign? What do these sources tell us? Biblical and extra-biblical sources. Well, hang in there. We know his reign is roughly 26 to 36 A.D. Uh, he, uh, Josephus and Philo in particular tell us some rather interesting things of these, these incidents that occurred during his uh, tenure there as the governor in Judea. Towards the beginning of his reign, there was what's called the incident of the standards. Now the standards were these military regimental like flag banner things that were being paraded into the city of Jerusalem, but he did it at night because he knew they had these images of the emperor Tiberius, who if you know anything about the Caesar and all that kind of thing, they were believed that you know you're supposed to worship that as a him as a god. Well, you can't just bring images of another god into Jerusalem without kicking up a stir. So they brought him in at night. Well, that led to a demonstration by the Jewish people in the political capital of Caesarea. It nearly got really ugly, but in the end, just to sum up the story, Pilate backed down. That's towards the beginning of his reign. A couple years later, we have the aqueduct incident. Pilate, 
says, I'm going to try and improve the water supply here in Jerusalem. So I'm going to run an aqueduct running from Bethlehem, a spring, down to Jerusalem. That sounds great, doesn't it? Except you know how you paid for it? From the temple funds. That started a stir within the city of Jerusalem. Actually, it started a riot within the city of Jerusalem that was put down with a lot of bloodshed. It was really ugly. 31 AD, we have the Golden Shields incident. Pilate brings in these Golden Shields into his headquarters there in uh, Jerusalem. Now, this time he's learned his lesson. No, no, no images. We're just going to have an inscription of dedication to Tiberius. But Herod, who we read about in the, the not Herod of Jesus is the birth narrative, but Herod towards the later one of his sons that you read about in, in the Holy Week there in the Synoptic Gospels, um, Herod and his other three brothers protest this in the formal protest to Tiberius. Tiberius sees the whole thing through their lens, sends a stern letter to Pilate. Pilate then has to back off and move those golden shields to Caesarea. That's 31 AD. Mark that. Two years later, 33 A.D., the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. This stuff does not happen in a vacuum, people. This stuff is happening in a historical context. Pilate is on thin ice, both with his people, well, the people that he's supposed to be governing, as well as the emperor Tiberius back in Rome, and he's got to play it smart somehow when that trial comes. We'll get to that in a minute. Three years later, what happened to Pilate, you may be wondering? Three years later, we have the Mount Gerizim incident. Uh, that's a case where you have this pseudo-prophet who says, Hey, Samaritans, come meet me up on Mount Gerizim, and I'm going to show you these artifacts that I've discovered from Moses' day. And these poor gullible people buy into this, and they start to assemble up, making their way towards Mount Gerizim. Unfortunately, they're also doing it armed, Pilate gets wind of this, sends the troops up, it gets ugly, a lot of people get killed, a lot of people get arrested, leaders are executed, the Samaritans get really upset about this, the leaders, they send another protest to Tiberius, who is really hacked now. He recalls Pilate to Rome. You know, it's like the ultimate come to the principal's office. Pilate leaves Judea to head towards Rome, but on his way, Tiberius dies. And Tiberius' successor basically cleans the books and pilots off scot-free. And that's the last we have really that's clear, 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 clear on Pilate. Although there's a lot of interesting things that have been written that came afterwards that possible, not quite sure. Okay, why am I boring you with this? I hope it wasn't boring you. Why am I informing you of all this? Because again, all of this tracks together. The biblical sources, the extra-biblical sources track and fit with what we know in terms of Pilate's career and his character. We have no reason, the reason I'm saying this is that we have no reason then to have anything but confidence in the biblical record. It fits. There, there aren't any cracks to the foundation here. None to be found. Again, if, if, if it's true, we should be able to see it's historically true. It's going to bear the pressure of investigation. And it, it does. It does. Just in this one core sample. I'll read you a quote. I, I, we talked about this in the class with the senior highs. Um, Charles Coulson, not Coulson, Charles Coulson, 
who was one of the architects, he's a physicist, one of the architects of molecular, molecular orbital theory. I'm sure you're all very well versed in that. I'm not. But this is something that he said. Rather interesting. If we need an atheist for a debate, I'd go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. You understand what he's saying there, right? Physics, the, the, the more honestly physics is done, the more it points you towards the reality of there being a creator. Now, let me, you know, why are you bringing that up? Because I would say the same thing of the, the history department. If you want to have, if you want to find an atheist for a debate, fine. Go to the philosophy department, but don't go to the physics department. Don't go to the history department. I'm not saying there aren't any skeptical physicists or any skeptical historians. There clearly are. What I'm saying is that when those studies are done in an, without the presuppositions of a naturalistic, materialistic, secular worldview, it proves to be extraordinarily fruitful. And astonishing things can be discovered. Life-changing things, in fact, can be discovered. Point being, the gospel answers our search. It's the best news that there is. It's the best news that we can hear, which means we need to hear it and embrace it. This good news that in Christ we can be forgiven and free. It's real. It's real. And it can be historically verified. Okay, fine. Does it fit? Does it fit? That's the second question. Um, does it match with our experience, our everyday, what we observe of the, of the world, what we know of, of life in this world? Yes, it does. And you know what it shows us? Um, it, it fits with what we know of life, and that is to say that oftentimes our best, excuse me, our worst, our worst comes out in our very best. Just bookmark that. Our worst comes out in our very best. How do you see that in the account of Pontius Pilate? Um, John chapters 18 and 19. Just, again, a core sample right here. For politically speaking, two ways I want to look at this. The political realm and the religious realm. The, the, from the political realm, what we have here is, is, is Pilate is ruling in the context of what historians refer to as the Pax Romana. The Roman peace. Some of you may be familiar with that if you studied ancient history. There's a, the idea being, and it's true, it's true, a, 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 the, the ability to travel freely in the Mediterranean world was extraordinary, especially because of the road systems, ruins of which are still there today. Bridges still there some places today. Um, the political, relatively, relatively politically st uh, stable governance at that time of the world. Also the rule of law. Okay? So what, I'm, what I want to say here is that in many respects you can say that Roman government was pretty much, from a political standpoint, you could almost make the case was the best we had to offer from a political standpoint. It was beyond anything the world had ever known up to that point. All right. Well, how does it play out? This is the best we've got to offer. How does it play out? What do we see here just in the case of Jesus of Nazareth, the trial? We see, uh, it's fair to say, Pilate seems to be just worn out from the back and forth and the back and forth and the back and forth and the back and forth. And he's, the man is like a tennis ball. And you see him going outside, inside, outside, inside. I mean, 
He's worn out. The cavalier, glib treatment of truth. Freedom granted to a man who is clearly guilty, Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a political terrorist, really, is what he, what he was. Beatings. I don't know if you caught this just from John's Gospel. Beatings that Jesus incurs, not just after the sentence is given, but before the sentence is given, the man is beaten. Three times. Three times in the course of what we read earlier, Pilate clearly declares Jesus to be innocent. But he condemns him to death out of fear. Heck with justice. I'm afraid for my life. I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but please hear me. This was the best we could do. Politically speaking, this is not mob rule, right? Politically speaking, you could really make a case that this is the best that we could do, and how did we do? All right, fine. How about the religious realm? How did, we do, how did things play out there? You know, in many ways, first century Judaism was also another high watermark. You've got Romans, Roman culture, the high watermark of, in the political sphere. First century Judaism, pretty much the high watermark of the religious sphere. Now, you're like, what? No, think with me here. Belief in a personal God. This is, these are radical things, especially at that time. Belief in a personal God. Rich, long-standing tradition. A willingness to acknowledge and do something with real human guilt, objectively. Um, the reality of truth and a high moral code. First century Judaism. How do we do? How do we do? What do you see? You see gross hypocrisy. You see a fixation on externals without any seeming desire to deal with the internals of the heart. False charges of treason. And a manipulation of a judicial process. Again, I don't mean to sound like a, a cynic, but this was the best that we could do. And this fits our experience, what we know of life, life in this world. Of everywhere we look, it's cracked. It's broken. It's fallen. It's flawed. You know, it's, it's almost like, if you can imagine, it's not quite, I looked it up, there's not quite a scene in any of the Rocky movies like this, but it's almost as though we're being taunted at this point. Really? Like some cosmic observer. Maybe it's that little green guy. He went back up. Really? That's all you got? That's the best that you could do? Yeah. It was. And it is. Christianity Explored, the series that we just finished in the adult series a little while ago, uh, last week, I guess. You may remember if you were part of it, there were three questions we kept coming back to again and again and again. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What's the response? This is getting at that second question, partly. Why did he have to come? Why did he have to come? Because our very best is and never will be good enough. This fits our experience. The gospel answers our search. It is the best news that there is. It is the best news that we could hear. We need to hear it. And embrace it, the gospel, the comfort, the assurance, the reality that in Christ there is nothing that you can do 
to make God love you any more, and there is nothing that you could do to make Him love you any less. And that's the news we need to hear. And it fits with our experience. Lastly, does it satisfy? Is it historically verifiable? Yes. Does it fit our experience? Yes. Does it satisfy the needs of our heart? Well, again, this is just one way of answering that question. We long to know as we're going through life and hit the, the, the storms of life and the difficulties of life that things have a purpose. That things have a, a, there's a point. That there's a, some sort of plan unfolding. Well, you actually see that here. You actually see that here. It's touching this longing of the heart. You think in terms of just the larger tapestry, the, the history. The history as we know it is playing out here. The, um, the Roman pride... Jane Austen fans will like this. The Roman pride and the Jewish prejudice that's at play here. The history. Or just maybe not just the grand tapestry, but maybe just some of the specific threads. The incidents you just look at here. Um, Pilate and his prior decisions just in the years leading up to Jesus' trial and how that plays into some of the decisions he made during Jesus' trial, and how the Jewish leaders know they have him. They have him over the proverbial barrel. They know what his pressure points are, and if they can just push on them, this whole business about not being Caesar's friend or being Caesar's friend, he's very sensitive to that, and they could play him. And they did. And they did. And you read this, and you have a sense of the unfolding of the events and you get the sense of the unfolding of a plan of, of a purpose that this was foreordained before the beginning of the world but my friends it's, it's as good as it is to know there is a purpose and a plan it's not good enough to know that it's just a purpose and a plan we need to know what the nature of the purpose and the plan is what kind of purpose and plan is this look at me in your bulletin the reading that we did just a little while ago from Acts 4 and verses 27 through 28, it's on the second page of your bulletin there, that reading that we did at the very top. This is part of that prayer. Listen to what they're saying. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, this was a, a matter of the worst miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. The trial of Jesus. The worst miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. By any reasonable standard. Everyone who was involved in it has their record spotted because of this. Everybody. And yet, we see God's sovereign grace at work. Now the hope in that is, we don't have to then know what His purposes always are. We're too, in fact, too nearsighted for that. But what we can take solace in is knowing that there, well, we know the one who is purposing. We know the one who has the plan. And we can trust Him. We don't have to know what it is, but we know who does. And we can trust Him. If I, you computer geeks, let me walk with you in this direction if I may. Or maybe you logic geeks, it may work either way. You programming geeks, an if-then statement? 
Remember the old basic machines? Are you too young for this? No? Some of you? Yeah. All right. The if-then statements. You can do that when you're talking about God because unlike us, he is beautifully consistent. Don't do that with me. I, I will disappoint you. Okay? But with the Lord, he is beautifully consistent. What I mean by that is if he can bring the most beautiful good out of the most horrendous evil with the trial and execution of Jesus, how much more then, if then, how much more can he do that? Does he intend to do that? Is he purposing to do that in our own lives? If then, if it was true with that, how much so with this? Or if I can put it this way, you're, standing, you're going through the valley. You feel like you're being dragged through the valley. I don't know the why. But I know the one who does. And he does bring the best from the worst. And so I will walk with him in this valley. I know he walks with me. Or maybe you're just beginning a journey. You're not actually in the valley. You're just kind of like on the precipice. You're moving into it. You have no idea what's ahead. You can't know. You can't know. But you can know this, you can know who goes with you. And you can know that he will bring you through whatever he brings in your path. Because there is nothing that he does not already know about, or is too great, or that he has not purposed. And you can trust him. See, my friends, the gospel answers our deepest searching. The fact, the proclamation that on the one hand, yes, we are more guilty and sinful than we ever dared to fear, but on the other hand, we are more loved in Christ than we ever dared to dream. The gospel, that message answers this deep longing of our hearts. And, and it can be historically verified. It fits with our experience, and it meets these deep longings of the soul. It's true. Put it another way. It's true. Truly true. The answers are in, and the search is over. But that does beg a question. If that's true, that it's true, why doesn't everyone believe it? That's not a question that should be cavalierly, glibly dismissed. And Jesus told a story to get at this very thing. So, I'm going to end with this. Move with me from John to Mark. Mark chapter 4. Jesus told a story. We know it as the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. It's another way you could put it. Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read it quickly, and then the interpretation Jesus gives of it. Listen, Mark 4, verse 3. Listen. A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now skipping over to verse 14. The sower sows this word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. Now, that's another, this is another sermon talking really exhaustively about that. I'm not for a moment with three minutes left going to do that. I just want to say this. On the one hand, real questions need to be treated seriously. Questions about the Christian faith, there, there, are, there is the reality of, of intellectual struggling and wrestling with the claims of Christianity and grappling with those, and they need to be taken seriously. There are the needs of the mind, but there are also, there are also the desires of the heart. And the needs of the mind, as well as the desires of the heart, can be a barrier to the gospel. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with an RUF campus minister. We are talking about worldviews and how he helps some of his students wrestle through with some of these things. And this is what, one of the things that he told me. Given his background in, in the physical sciences and philosophy, what he said was, you know, when I need to, I, I can go there. I can go there. But here's the thing. In a lot of cases, for most guys, and we're talking about guys in particular, for most guys, it's not so much those kinds of questions, what's really behind their skepticism, is that they want to keep sleeping with their girlfriend. Now, don't laugh. That's not funny. Again, hear me say the, desire, the, the needs of the mind to wrestle with the intellectual questions of the Christian faith are real and need to be taken seriously. But so too do the desires of the heart. Both can serve as barriers to belief in the gospel. It might be sex, it might be money, it might be power, it might be an insistence on having everything figured out. Or some other thing. What do we do? Jesus' words, a story that he tells here in Mark 4, help us. They show us how to pray. If it, if, pray for others. Lord, you know their hearts. You know, Lord, make them good soil. May the seed find a place to settle there and take root. But maybe it's ourselves. Lord, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil am I? Oh, make me that good soil that would be receptive of that seed, that I would bear fruit 40, 60, 100 Old. May it be. The gospel answers our search. It's the best news that there is. It's the best news that we could hear. May we hear it and embrace it. Let's pray. Lord, you have made every one of us here different. Um, our hungers, our needs, our desires, our inclinations, how we come to you some of it has to do mostly with the mind. Some of it has mostly to do with the emotions. Some of it has mostly to do with the will. And, and we are glad and relieved to know that the gospel meets us at each level. We are each different, but we are all the same. Somehow at the same time. We have the same need. We're made by you, made for you. And you know us. You know all of us here. Some of us here this morning are at peace with the things that we've just been talking about. Um, and just want to know how they can communicate this better. 
Pray that you'd help. Lord, others of us are wrestling. Could this be true? Could this really be true? Help them, oh Lord, help them. We pray that you'd give us all true understanding of you. And we know from that flows true understanding of ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.